Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast. Uh, I'm Phil Koo and my co-host here, Tekwin Lim. Hi, everyone. So t- this is the second episode. We're, uh, we're making speed. We're, we're making progress here. <laughs> Two episodes. <coughs> Who thought we'd get this far? <laughs> Last week we spoke about hunter gatherers, sort of what what consists of how do you define a hunter gatherer or a hunter gatherer group? And today I thought we'd talk about why do this podcast? Why talk about hunter gatherers? Why are we interested in them specifically? And maybe a, on a broader scale, why why do they? What is the conversation about them? Uh, why would it be of interest to? anyone else and society that we're in. Yeah. So maybe how about we both share our kind of motivations or our personal feelings about why we first got interested in these things. Do you want me to start? Uh, Yeah, I would like you to start. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I was kind of lucky because growing up in KL, my a mother, when I was, I must have been only about five years old, she actually took me out to the outskirts of Kale and we went to this village where these Orang Asli, the indigenous people of Malaysia, lived. And so so I, I got the kind of a glimpse from a young age of what it was like, even though I grew up in the city, I saw that, uh, well, definitely not everyone had the same kind of luxuries that we had. And in many respects, it was really kind of like exciting and romantic that these uh, people still lived as kind of like, um, not, well, yeah, literally in the rainforest. And some of them, actually this one guy who we used to go and visit, He'd actually killed a, a tiger. I think he had a blowpipe and he climbed up a tree and the tiger had been underneath and he like blowpiped the tiger. And so that's um, like, you can imagine a small boy then. That's, what What group did he belong to? Right, he, he must be in a Tumwan. Yeah, it's a Tumwan village and the Tumwan, Tamwan are not hunter-gatherers, although, you know, it's a kind of a continuum. The Tamwan are sort of, uh, they, they fall under what's known as the Aboriginal Malays, and so they're kind of horticulturalists. They would have these forest gardens, and uh, they, they do have villages, and so they're, they're considered by the authorities like some of the more, uh, well, traditionally, they were thought of as being more advanced, but now that's uh, that, well. That's something for us to discuss as well. Whether hunter gatherers are backwards, or it's uh, and we are advanced. Or... I think for m- most people listening, or who will be listening to this program, I, they'll sort of understand that they'll they get it. You know, it's not necessarily a linear progression, but it's definitely a sentiment uh, and a belief that still exists out there. You're talking to the uh, average person. I think they still consider that uh, backwards, you know, certain people more advanced if they have animal husbandry and so on. Yeah. 
So this idea of savage versus civilized. And, uh, and, and yeah, and, and so in Malaysia, we actually have quite a continuum. So these Tamwan are they are just literally on the edge of civilization. And then a bit further, you have the Swideners who do have agriculture, but it's not fixed agriculture. It's like every few years they will move their village or they will move their fields, open up new fields. They have this kind of like fallow, a long rotation fallow periods between uh, they, they would, they're known as slash and burn because they cut down a small patch of forest, burn it, and then plant crops for a few years. But um, yeah, on the on the full end of the spectrum, then you have the hunter-gatherers, all the, the kind of true hunter-gatherers and true foragers. But again, it's not so black and white because even them, even they uh, do occasionally plant some crops. Or rely on trade goods and, and for, uh, cultivated food substances from other groups. Yeah, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, they have been in close contact with the other groups. And so it's not like they derive all of their subsistence from hunting and gathering, not at all. But Well, back, back to you as a child. So you, yeah. you saw yeah. this... Uh, tiger skin or you'd heard the story of this yeah well, and you met yeah. the people of the jungle yeah I, mean, I, I thought it was really neat one of the things i love doing is going to their village and playing in the stream so it's like a nice sandy stream and yeah, quite different from our garden we had this tiny little semi-detached house in the suburbs and with the tiny little garden but it's this was my introduction to not just the people, but the nature and the wider forests. And um, there was a, well, actually only until really recently, like maybe five, ten years ago, that I discovered that there were still, I think I mentioned this last week or in our last podcast, that there were still these semi-nomadic or traditional hunter-gatherer communities in Malaysia, in peninsular Malaysia. Yeah, I'd heard about the Penan, the Penan and these famous forest nomads of Borneo, but I didn't realize we had similar, well, yeah, we, we also had forest nomads in the peninsula. And I think it's, well, it's quite a, well, the stereotype for the Orang Asli was, already you know they are the primitives they are the savages and a lot of the mainstream malaysians think okay they must all be the same you know they must all be roaming around in the forest they must all be these hunter gatherers but i knew that they were uh, that the orang asli were not all like that it's just i didn't know that there were a significant number of them you know like more than a thousand of them that are these um did fall into this hunter-gatherer group, this kind of semi-nomadic group as well, group that did not traditionally have uh, have villages. And then it was only until I actually went and got met these people and got to know them that I was blown away that some of them, our age, were actually born into a little camp that was the little group of people that did not live in a village and that really did that were still nomadic and i'm not entirely sure if there are any 
groups still like that in uh, in the peninsula. I think there might be one or two. Most of them have kind of settled down now. But the fact is that mm. yeah, many of them who are still alive today were born in, into literally no, uh, nomadic communities. And that, yeah, um, to get back to why that's special, I mean, it's, it's something that's kind of hard to pin down. It's just a whole idea of uh, something that's so different from what we do. And also, in a way, it's tied to freedom and independence and, uh, and, and, and not having to follow all of the rules that we, ha- we have in the city. That I think that's quite compelling. That's quite attractive. Yeah, that transitions into my reason uh, very well, because I unfortunately didn't have that uh, exposure as a child. But I think uh, I was exposed to books and things about the Indians uh, here of the Americas. And, and uh, you know, they're just cool, right? There's a, they are cool. And the, the big reason that they're cool is because they're, they're free. They have freedom more than we have here. And I'm not an anthropologist or I'm not an academic, so I, I might speak a little bit more uh, uh, liberally. And I remember as a kid, I can't remember, eight, eight or something, maybe younger, just wondering, why do I have to go to school? School is so terrible. They make me do things I don't want to do. I hate reading. And this, it was just terrible. The whole experience was terrible. And I didn't have my parents were immigrants and we moved uh, once and I lost my friends in the neighborhood. And then it was, it was pretty lonely uh, for the next years. And you could say loneliness sort of um, defines living in this, uh, this society we are in now. It's the quintessential or the defining characteristic of this sort of modern life we have here. Yeah. Especially separation. Yeah. And uh, so, I just the the questions were un were relentless. You know the the questioning of why why are things so terrible? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to do these things I don't want to do? And then as you get older, this is always more. And why why do I have to go to work and do these things? There's why is the why is there so much pollution? Don't people understand? Don't don't the companies? How can they? How can they not see that we're destroying the planet? You know what? And and luckily, I did grow up with a lot of um, nature time. There's uh, the city I live in. There's a park with a river, and my parents would take take me there a lot. We'd run around, and the school I I did go to was a private school, and um, they put us. Uh, they took us to the park by the river every lunch hour, and we could just run around relatively unsupervised the teacher would just sit down and we'd just go run around in the the woods there and it was a, a lot of fun and uh, that was the best time of the day <laughs> so when i learned about um uh hunter gatherers as a economic sort of classification in university in the first year anthro class i thought wow these people the the first thing they tell you is they work the least amount of hours and they have uh, egalitarian um, social structure. Um, the men and women are pretty much uh, on equal footing. And what else? Uh, yeah, uh, th- and, and that I was just okay. These people are the most interesting to me. And and from there on, um, I had I had remembered that these 
this sort of, I noted that in my mind, but not until recently, the last maybe, yeah, five years or so that I really sort of start finding more literature about it and uh, about the topic and actually trying to f visit actual groups. And uh, yeah, when you actually visit, uh, meet people who are hunter gatherers, they they contradict everything or so many things when one thinks about you know how humans should behave or what you expect you know i just remember visiting the village and no one really you know when you're a new person it's like you don't even exist they they know you're there and they just sort of wondering how long you're going to be before you leave <laughs> kind of at least for me because i i just sort of showed up unannounced with some with another group though with the ngo that or the, the eco tier guys that uh mm. that took me but um you know you you expect in other cultures it generally are sort of settled uh, hierarchical structures there's a sort of Mm, there's a, there's formalities. I'm I'm sure they have them too, but um, but for within their uh, kinship groups and uh, their world, right? But uh, things like yeah, um, there's something about that which I really found that, that I liked as well. That, that mm -hmm. there was you didn't get the sense that oh, they were being fake. Because yeah. so much of our culture is just fake formality. It's like, oh, so nice to meet you. Welcome. Yeah. yeah. But the fact that, I mean, on one hand, you could, if you were not expecting it, you could think, oh, you know, they're being unfriendly, mm -hmm. they're not being welcoming. But on the other hand, I think it prob I probably prefer that rather than this uh, fake friendship. Yeah, they're being completely honest, you know. They're like, what does this outsider want here? And they're very skeptical, right? I remember watching, um, I watched uh, Bruce Perry. Hopefully we can get him on the show one day. That'd be great. Bruce Perry, he made a documentary called Tawai. And he said the same thing. He said, because uh, he did a television series where he visited different, uh, quote unquote, tribal groups. And he visited the Penan and stayed there for, I think, a few weeks. And he said the Penan were unlike any of the other groups he'd met. You know, the other ones were, I think, the Maasai and uh, maybe the, uh, I can't remember, somewhere, an, an Amazonian group. And then there was, the, I think, the, some uh, reindeer herders, you know, pastoralists and so on. But the Penan were so different. You know, there was just they were completely different, and I I had that feeling when I visited the 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 Manya or the Batek group, and also the Mani, that they were just um, they didn't have those formalities. There was something uh, different, you know, about that their that way of living. Yeah, you know, one of the groups that I visited, these were a farming group in the heart of Borneo. They were not the Penan, another group. And, well, I went there with an NGO and uh, it was, I mean, they were very friendly, very welcoming, but they, they they were almost too friendly in the sense that I they, they said, all right, they wanted uh, to basically have 
um, me consider them as an adoptive uh, family and they would um, uh, but I always got the sense that in the back of my mind that they were being friendly because they thought that I might um, um, have resources you know because I came with this NGO I would have a budget and if they were mm-hmm. friendly with me maybe they would get some jobs or at least if I stayed with them then they would get some income because uh, I pay them for staying with them and so that was that was not a nice feeling mm-hmm. like okay they uh, how do I know if they're being sincere or not? And so with uh, with the Batek, it's uh, very, very different. And, and I, I didn't get any of that feeling that they were, there was any kind of pretense or ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do a lot with their ability to move around or historically their, their freedom to move around. Uh, it's just like... Where other groups would play sort of more into the uh, the building relationships, although the 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 hunter gatherers do have long established relationships, trade relationships, and and sort of defend. I, I was reading in um, uh, Malaysia's original people, the book. I can't remember who wrote the paper, but how Orang Asli, uh, I think Batek specifically. Uh, def- sort of defended their borders, so to say, uh, def- defended the border of the forest by making camp at the edge of the forest so that they could maintain trade relations with Malays. Even, af- even after slave raiding, um, they would not too long after uh, set up camp closer to the edge of the forest so that they could maintain a, a trade uh, boundary you know, with the Malay villages so that the Malay villages wouldn't necessarily encroach further into the forest. And I'm sure it was also mutually beneficial where the, you know, the, the, they benefited from the trade goods um, as well. All right. The, the other thing that I remember feeling, it was kind of connected to this idea of independence. It's that when I was a kid, I was always wondering, you know, what is this thing that people call money, where does it come from? You And you mentioned you uh, did economics. And so that was, it's still kind of a mystery to me. But from the point of view of these hunter-gatherers, the, they don't really need money. If they can, if they do have enough uh, forests with enough wildlife in it, they can just go out and catch anything if they are hungry. There's enough food in the rainforest to, uh, for them to survive off. And that that's really compelling. The idea of uh, being independent of the the economy, it's, the the monetary uh, uh, economy, yeah, and and not having to have these all of the worries that come with money and jobs, mm. that kind of thing. It's a it's so fascinating when you look into hunter gatherer um, uh, anthropology and studies. There's so much, and I find there's a lot more talk and mentioning of hunter-gatherers these days, uh, even by people who have very little clue about hunter-gatherers. They sort of just, well, you know, we used to live in caves, and then, you know, that's how you would, you know, everyone had to just, it was tooth, nail, it was it, what's the uh, tooth, nail, and claw is the yeah. expression. I can't remember who wrote that, Hobbes or something. But um, people still have this Hobbesian idea of our, of um, hunter-gatherer life or, um 
non-industrial and uh, non-industrial non-agriculture we always there's the term usually is pre-industrial but i think that's a misnomer and a misleading term because it presumes a presumes a um, a timeline a, a progression but i th- i think non-agriculture or foraging life is is much much more apt and um this discussion of uh, hunting and gathering in relation also to our contemporary market and industrial culture and even to previous uh let's say uh, settled uh um let's say uh, settled um non-industrial cultures but still settled it's it's really interesting because we can you can't talk about human nature without taking in you know human nature in in a hunter gatherer format it's it's impossible i think to to just look at it from one side of the coin and understanding hunter gatherers and, and people in hunter gathering modes of uh living explains can can shine a light on what we're trying to understand about ourselves in the context of a market economy in the context of an industrial mass society yeah um one one thing i i i find interesting is this idea that you mentioned briefly that um the hunter gatherers among the members of the public most people think of them as like representing the stone age and there is of course that's a fallacy in that they are as modern as you and i but uh, there is something there in the sense that the um the stone age people would have had very similar lifestyles of course there are important differences but i think the basic idea of uh, foraging was the is the connection now their cultures will have changed and uh, a lot as we mentioned they have had this uh, contact with um, cultural and industrial societies which of course uh, has changed many aspects of their cultures but i think the fundamentals are pretty much um, the same as they would have been for um uh, hundreds of thousands of years and so this ties in with this whole philosophy of the paleo movement paleo lifestyle paleo diet and the idea that we evolved for a certain lifestyle and that lifestyle is most suitable for humans and it's only recently that we've ad- adopted this kind of agricultural diet and uh, this industrial lifestyle which is not as healthy because it's not something we we have adapted to yet so i i think that philosophy is very very much connected with the reason i'm uh, i'm interested in hunter gatherers and the uh just thinking as you were saying the idea of stone age uh, stone age is sort of is considered this um very primitive thing a very regress regressive thing in some ways uh or one could reimagine it that the the stone age at least uh, aspects of it are contemporary and modern uh, as much as uh, 
what is it the information in uh, rocket age and so on uh, people living in um some structures uh living in shelters made of uh, easily uh, obtained local materials that uh, such as uh, a is a batek word for a shelter um which is made uh, it's sort of a lean to made of um palm thatch and and uh branches and uh bedding made of sticks uh that are laid out to make a bed or so on or sometimes just leaves that's sort of stone age technology but it's people still use it so it's not necessarily we it doesn't need to be seen as a uh, bad or or from the past it's it's still being used and it's still just as good and effective as it ever was. And, and, and it's actually preferable to many people um, that we've met uh, to living in a concrete block house that uh, where the temperature, and you've been in these concrete blocks, they're so hot, especially in Malaysia, obviously, but uh, being in one of those um, thatched huts is cool and breezy, especially if it's in the, uh, in the forest. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the final kind of angle that I'm interested in, this idea of sustainability. So it's something that that so many people in the city are interested in, or they say they're interested in and pursuing. But uh, in so many ways, it's, it's, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to look back at what has been sustainable in the past and what uh, technologies are being used by these groups still today. And I think the answer is quite, uh, is, is, is quite, quite obvious if you see that so many aspects of their life, their traditional lifestyle are sustainable because they've been practicing it like uh, in the peninsula for more than 50,000 years. Mm-hmm. People, the, the narrative that is common is that hunting gathering life was difficult it was it was very highly competitive there was a lot of um uh, compet- competition between people it was brutal the the conditions were n- not optimal and people suffered and they died early um and any little infection caused them to die and uh, men dominated women um brutally but when one actually looks into it it's the opposite and I think that's another reason for doing this this podcast is because people, if one has that uh, idea about uh, what hunter-gatherer and forager life is in the past and also in the present, then it leads to more, uh, it leads to, well, it, it's not good for the people who still want to live like hunter-gatherers and as hunter-gatherers because it presumes that they need to be rescued from their primitive ways and brought it, be brought into the saving, uh, the, the grace of civilization and which is completely not true. The, the people don't want to be brought in. Uh, and I've had people really angry at me for suggesting that, um, but they have so little uh, knowledge of what actual, people who are hunter gatherers want i can't speak for them all but i've i've from what i've read and the interactions i've had people are very very 
happy to live their, their way of life. And I'm very sad when the, the means to live that life uh, are taken away. Yeah, what I would like to point out that this is actually quite a controversial position, and that, as you as you mentioned, that it's, it's it's not that easy to convince everyone of this position. In fact, there's a whole um, there's a whole line of reasoning um, along the lines of the myth of the noble savage, and of, of course there are elements of truth there, but it also misses some. Of the, points on the other hand and um, so so it might it might be nice at some point for the podcast to bring in some people with this opposite perspective people who say uh, or, or at least uh, have uh, don't share all the beliefs that we have yeah that could also go very that could become very messy and you might see me uh, swearing a lot on this <laughs> program <laughs> I that might it might make an interesting podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, who knows? It might bring it might bring some uh, more uh, people to to our audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, but definitely, um, people who are actually uh, hunter gatherers themselves. That I think that's the that's the most interesting angle for me. Yeah, um, yeah, of course. Who who's uh, I've ne- I would love if there was a podcast show where I could listen to that. And, and that's why I also reached out to you to, to do this show so that we could actually hear from them. I mean, that's another excuse for me one day to sit down with, uh, let's say Mayam and speak to him for an hour or two. Mayam is um, a man uh, that we both know who's in the Batek uh, village that we visit. And he is uh, one of the most knowledgeable members of the group and when it comes to the actual hunting uh hunting and gathering practices at least of the men's on the men's side of things i think that's probably accurate to say and um there's another thing i was thinking of uh explaining why this podcast uh yeah uh, the oh yeah so if we're also looking at how to make changes to society, not necessarily on a, yeah, well, on a top-down level, but uh, understanding that top-down is one part of the problems of our, our society. And uh, decentralization is, is something that's being talked about more and more. And that's something that, that decentralization is a feature of hunter-gatherer life. So why not look to, these groups to see what makes it possible now with all this technology and our reliance on um, on monocultures how do we how do we make that more conducive to our well-being because inherently uh, hierarchy is frustrating and and i think uh, a lot of our efforts in our lives are are just because we feel not good enough because we see someone with a better car a, a what we're told is a better car and a bigger house. And, and that's inherently, it's inherently enraging uh, to us. I remember um, Chris Ryan, who I hope we also get on the show one day mentions in a book, in his book, civilized to death, or maybe it's in um, 
sex at dawn, but he mentions this study uh, that with baboons and there's two baboons in uh, cages or in enclosures next to each other. And the researcher gives both of them, uh, I think it's a, a carrot or something. He gives them some sort of treat, you know, and they simultaneously gives them both this, this carrot, right? And then they're eating it and they're both content. And then one of them starts getting a grape while the other one keeps getting a carrot. And the one getting the carrot throws the carrot back at the researcher. He says, then why do I don't, why don't I get the, uh, the grape? I want a grape too. So, but you have a carrot, you should be, you know, you, you didn't stop getting carrots. So that's sort of the position we're in here where, yeah, we still have a shelter. We have electricity. We have all these things that supposedly make us happy uh, according to the official narrative. Well, it's life is way better now than it was in the middle ages because everyone uh, died of diarrhea and, and uh, you wore weird clothes and, you know, there was, you're just toiling all the time, but, you know, was it really that way? Because at least in your little village in the Middle Ages, you knew everyone and there wasn't much hierarchy. Um, you did know the king, but you never saw him. And he was just somewhere very far away or the, the Lord. And and now we're, we still, we have all these, we're richer than any medieval king and yet we're totally unsatisfied. So sort of um, why why this society is built this way. We can sort of analyze it and how to change things potentially on a personal level and on a broader scale. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a good summary of the key points. So I I think I've I've, I've covered most main reasons why I'm interested in together. Absolutely. Yeah. And and then just the details are so fascinating too, uh, I find too, just how the the actual skills, like how does blowpiping work? How do you make a, how do you make a shelter? How do you, uh, how does poison fish uh, gathering, poison fishing work? I mean, those things are really fascinating and interesting uh, on a more macro level. Oh yeah. So I actually forgot another very important point that now you mention it. So some of the details I'm really interested in academically are the relationship with the, that the hunter-gatherers have with um, yeah other animals in the rainforest and plants as well. And so this is a whole kind of ecology that has built up around these people for over the last tens of thousands of years. And that is well, it's known as what local ecological knowledge. And it's yeah, really at risk of uh, being lost before it's even documented. And so that would be uh, something really valuable, which I think definitely not enough people are working on uh, documenting it. And so, yeah, if we had a few, uh, some of these podcasts would be the first time that some of this information had ever been recorded. Um, of course, it, it it's passed on by word of mouth, but um, now, um, yeah, through a podcast, even we'd be able to record it for perpetuity. The the idea that things are, I mean, you mentioned at risk. Um, this is a something that I've thought about as well, where we're always talking about, well, in in the future, in the future the collapse will happen or in the future we'll run out of 
forest in the future, you know, we only have 10 years left before it all goes to, to hell. Right. But I'd argue that we've been there. We're already there and we've been there for a long time. Um, at least on the mass, uh, for mass society. And, you know, we, there's so many languages have already been lost. So much knowledge has already been lost. The, the groups uh, we're talking about, um, they're living already for pretty much, um, a semi-settled life and it doesn't look too great for the transmission of knowledge, um, at least in a functional way, you know, the stories might be passed on, but take the, from what I understand, a lot of the kids aren't going into the jungle and, or at least the teenagers, uh, aren't in the jungle as much as, you know, their, their parents were, uh, so it's uh it's unfortunate um and and that's another reason why this podcast interests me or doing this because i think there there needs to be a place for hunter gatherers and and small scale societies like swidners and so on of course they directly come in conflict with that conflicts the interests of the state uh, and also the interests of um expansionist civilization but there must be a way there must be a way to accommodate both i mean civilization is running itself into the ground um how can can't there be a can't there be a room for both you know i mean there has been for a long time uh, but moving forward there must be a, a, a like national parks, so to say. Couldn't national parks be also home to hunter gatherers? I mean, the idea of a national park sort of is kind of ridiculous when it was just people's home for for millennia, and now it's part of a state. You know, the state governs this place. But okay, yeah. So that that's actually another very tangible thing that I'm interested in. And this is for the, this specific group that I want to, uh, why I want to help them. I want to help them regain access or keep access to their land, even though it's inside the national park. Some of it's inside a forest reserve. A lot of it is being logged. And uh, yeah, so they're a group that are our friends and, and uh, Already we've learned uh, quite a lot from them and it's perhaps one way to give back to them by, uh, yeah, I think people know about their plight uh, and also helping them get the authorities to recognize their, mm. their rights. Yeah. And on a, if, if the conversation or the understanding of, of hunter-gatherer life uh, increases uh, just among the general public, people who, let's say, engage in, um, you know, we're all, we're all, unfortunately, or we're all have to uh, make do in this, in this market economy. And, and we're incentivized to always make more money because uh, there is no, there, the mechanisms of security, social security are gone. Uh, the ones that the hunter gatherers have, you know, that someone else will share with you food with you um, unquestionably. 
those those structures are missing and that leads to all our loneliness and and also the um the sort of unconditional acceptance that exists in hunter gatherers uh, society unless you really really mess up but it, it's it's very difficult i think to get that far but um that's missing and that leads a lot of people to to do things that are like seek so much profit that it's just so un they could never spend even in a lifetime and do very destructive things um if if those people can understand or at least have some better understanding of what hunter gatherer life is and what's missing in their life that you know leads them to do that leads us all to to do a lot of things that we do here uh perhaps there'll be sort of a more accommodation of uh, other ways of living. Uh, that's at least my hope. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's probably an hour we've done. So yeah, probably wrap it up. Yeah. Hopefully maybe on the next one we can, I'm, I'm working on, uh, or I'm reading your, your dissertation. And it's, it's really interesting. So it's a long one, but, uh, I'll read the parts that, that are most applicable to like, uh, yeah, not all the so chapters have anything to do with um, the Bate. The Bate mostly in uh, maybe some background chapters. So yeah, we'll we'll do that uh, on a future episode. Your dissertation, uh, talk about that human uh, human elephant relations, and uh, hopefully we'll have a guest on soon. Great. All right. So that's uh, thanks for listening, everyone. That was uh, Hunter Gathers episode two.